From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 192, and today's show is brought to you by Eero, Storyworth, and Simple Contacts. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. How are you? I'm very well, Jason Snell. How are you? I'm doing great. Do anything interesting this last week? Sure did, my friend. Uh, I have my bachelor party in Austin, Texas. Oh, nice. With a bunch of my favorite people. But nobody wants included... to hear about that, Mike. Oh, look at that. We're going to go into our hashtag snail talk question. I like that. Very clever. Very clever indeed. You sucked me right in. You took advantage of my jet lag. Joel wants to know, Jason, if a movie is released in IMAX, 3D, and as, as well as regular 2D, do you have a preference of which version you would like to see? Uh, great question, Joel. And my answer is, I don't like 3D movies. I have seen mm-hmm. some 3D movies that I thought were fine, that did a good job. But in general, I don't like them. I don't like the fact that because of the way the 3D process works, you generally get a darker picture. I wear glasses, so I don't really like the fact that I spend an entire uh, movie with two pairs of glasses stuck on my face. I hate that so much. It is yeah. the it is the worst. So I will always pick a regular 2D movie. IMAX, I've seen some IMAX movies and if it's an IMAX movie, I like them. But a lot of times there's an a, a film that's in IMAX, oftentimes like The Dark Knight I saw and it was at an IMAX theater and it was most of the movie was just the movie projected on the giant IMAX screen, and then there were there were some parts of it that were shot in IMAX that were at the IMAX ratio, and then they went back mm-hmm. to the other aspect ratio. My uh, my only IMAX movie was uh, Blade Runner twenty forty eight, and that had some IMAX yeah. stuff in it, and it was glorious, right? Like it looked wonderful. It, yeah, it looks great. It's it's a little bit weird, um, but I don't have an IMAX theater near me. <laughs> Honestly, uh-huh. well, I mean, near me, I have in my county. I don't have any. I would have to go to kind of the far side of San Francisco or out into the East Bay, which means I never go to IMAX movies, and I try to avoid the three D movies. In fact, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I own what are called two D glasses. I've never seen these, and this is maybe one of the best things I've ever come across. So if you uh, if you go to a three D movie and you don't want to see three D. You wear these. That's hilarious. And it and what it does is is you know the way three D movies work is that the uh, two lenses are polarized differently so that you see um, two different images and that's how three D works is that they give you that depth sen- sensation. Two uh, D how it two D glasses are only one side. And so it's it flattens the image. Um, I will say um, for people who are maybe thinking sort of like what about the purity of the 3D image? I'll just point out almost every movie made now that's in 3D is faked. It's um, they have a if you look in the credits like Infinity War is a good example of this. If you sit through the credits of any movie and a Marvel movie is a good one to sit through the credits through because you want to see what happens in the post credit sequence. You will see an entire section of names that are the people who did the 3D conversion because 3D cameras are really heavy and hard to use. And most people don't bother. They just shoot it in 2D and let some company sit there and apply fake depth in order to give that 3D effect. And if you like 3D movies, that's great, but I don't care for it. I don't think it's really necessary. Um, I, I try to avoid them, and I have 2D glasses for when I actually want to avoid them. Um, I also did, uh, in order to cure one of the other issues we've got, I have bought but haven't used yet, um, some 3D clip-ons. Uh, the idea there is, well, what if I go to a 3D movie and I can clip some little 3D lenses onto my glasses? 
and don't that have that good. second set of plastic over my face. And it's compatible with most of the 3D theaters. So I've got those. And the next time I end up uh, at a 3D showing, I'm going to try those. Um, I've used the 2D class glasses before and they worked just fine. But um, but the 3D clip-ons, I'm going to give a try. We'll put links into the show notes. I, I, I can't, you know, I haven't used it yet, but just if you're curious about that. But, you know, Joel, my standard answer here is 2D works for me. In fact, when they started doing MoviePass and uh, the, the MoviePass service where you pay a certain amount of money and you can see a certain amount of movies that keeps changing um one of their restrictions is no 3d because of course 3d movies cost more that's why they do them so they can charge you more for them and create a, an experience that you can't get at home uh and i was okay with movie pass being like oh no no, no 2d only <laughs> like oh what is what a shame i can only see a 2d movie that's what i want to see i just said while we're talking about movies absolutely no spoilers but i enjoyed infinity war more the second time we saw it me too for a second time this past week and i enjoyed it more me too and and i will also say as an aside it was my first time in an alamo draft house and i loved Which is it a wild experience i have to say i i looked at that and i thought this is how the movies stay in business this is how people keep going to movies is stuff like this because yep. I loved it. Yep. I loved it all. I love the reserve seats, which I know a lot of movie theaters have reserve seats now, uh, but none in my area do. Uh, I love the reserve seats. I love the fact that we, you know, order food and it's delivered. And if I want another beer during the show, I just write it on a piece of paper and stick it on on the little uh, thing in front of me. And somebody comes by mm-hmm. and brings me a beer. And then at the end, I sign my credit card slip and it's done. It's amazing. That's so funny. Like when the person's like crawling down and they like hand the beer up to you it's a it's a very weird experience but a a good one at the same time yeah yeah so thumbs up to a second viewing of infinity war thumbs up to the alamo draft house thumbs down to 3d <laughs> i i think i agree with basically everything you just said i i stopped going to 3d movies a while ago i just wasn't interested in it anymore yeah. like it just it wasn't necessary for me because it felt like more and more of it was being ham-fisted. Right. And, it's more, and it's more expensive, right? They charge you more for yeah. it. That's the other part of it. If somebody is wondering, by the way, why is it that I am sometimes forced to go to a 3D movie? It's mostly about logistics. I uh, yeah. Whether it is I need to see something quickly for a podcast, which does happen, or whether it's my family can only go at a certain time. And we don't live, the closest theater to us does not have a lot of screens. In fact, the closest theater to us has one screen, which is great. But, and it's a great experience, except if the timing is that the only time we can take the kids is on a Saturday at this time and it's a 3D showing, well, we're going to go to the 3D showing. If we can avoid it, we do, but we can't always avoid it. And likewise, if the timing, if I need to go see a movie, now that I have movie pass, this is probably less so where I'd like, I'm really going to try to use that and not do a 3D showing, but it does happen sometimes where you just end up at a 3d showing so it's not as if a big burly man comes and says you will go to the 3d movie now like it's not quite like that but it's just expediency but if i can avoid it yeah it's cheaper and i don't need to see it and i kind of don't want to see it which is why i bought the 2d glasses do you know if the new uh, avatar movies are being shot in 3d again or oh, of he... course of course i mean because i would see that right because i saw the original avatar in 3d and it was incredible in 3d i, I agree i mean the list i i can make a list of 3d movies that i really liked i liked avatar i liked tron legacy in 3d i thought it looked really cool um and uh hugo is the one i keep mentioning because yes martin scorsese made a 3d movie 
that's a family movie and it's called Hugo. And it's not only is it a good movie, but it is beautiful in 3D because you are seeing a master working with the best uh, cinematographers and they were like, okay, we're going to make this in 3D. We're going to make it really good. And it, it was really good. But then I've seen all sorts of summer blockbusters in 3D and it just kind of leaves me cold. It doesn't doesn't really do anything for me. There are occasional moments where you think, oh, well, that that looks pretty cool in 3D. But most of the time I find it distracting and unnecessary. So and plus it does make the movie darker. I'm really I'm really happy about the fact that like it feels like the trend of a thing happens in a movie just because it's going to be in 3D seems to have died away. You know, like there's like a scene where like, oh, and it's all coming to the screen, you know, like there's been a big crash and there's debris flying directly at you. Like it feels like some of that's died off, which is good because you watch a 2D movie and you're like, oh, that was the big 3D effect that I didn't get to see because I didn't want to see that. I think in Star Trek, is it maybe Star Trek or Star Trek Into Darkness that there's a, uh, the warp drive is in 3D and I was like, oh, that was cute. But it's like literally the only thing that made me excited about the 3D in that movie. So, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's, I don't think it's necessary. Um, I, uh, it, it's fine if you like it. It's fine if you like it. Obviously it works enough. Although I've read stories that say that audiences are lukewarm about 3D and that it, it is more like they go because it's the time that's convenient for them um, and that some people are un, unhappy when they have to put the glasses on. But uh, as long as it is something that can boost the... The bottom line, we talked about the Alamo Draft House. Bottom line is the the movie theaters are trying to find ways to get people to come to the movie theater because it's a good experience instead of staying home and having movies that are exclusive is part of it and that's always been the case since home video happened that you know there's a period where you need to see the movie in the theater and that's fine but it is now about nice seats they bring you food they let you reserve your seats and 3d is one of those things that's kind of on that list of especially since 3d tv didn't take off that if you want to see the 3d version of anything you got to see it in the movie theater because after that you're basically never going to see it again until some other 3d tech comes along maybe you know with uh with higher quality vr goggles maybe 3d will come back in that format but uh because you need to have the special glasses basically to do 3d or they'll invent some amazing 3d tv that requires no glasses but the 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 industry's attempt to make 3d tv happened failed and is it's going to be a while before they try again so it's on the list of things good sound theoretically is on that list too and you know anything else they can do to make it a more pleasant experience um and i believe they can do it and going to the alamo draft house um convinced me of that that like there are ways Mm -hmm. to make the movie theater experience a nice one that people actually are excited about doing um, I'm not. I'm not convinced 3D is a big part of that strategy, but I get why it's a part of the strategy. Plus, it lets them raise the ticket price for a lot of showings because they charge extra for 3D. It's an extra fee they get to charge. If you would like to send in a Snell Talk question, just send out a tweet with the hashtag Snell Talk, and it goes into a document for us to pull later on. Thank you to Joel for his excellent question this week. Um, I wanted to just give a piece of follow up, Jason, in regards to uh, Yoav's hashtag Ask Upgrade question last week, where uh, Yoav asked about finding a way to get rid of duplicates basically from 
uh, the photos app. So when you have a, a like a shared file, a shared album of photos, and you want to download them, or you end up with a bunch of duplicates. And whilst we don't have a great way to solve that problem, uh, Nash has a great way to get rid of the duplicates once you've got them. As an app that he uses called Best Photos, um, which will allow you to de- detect and remove uh, duplicate photos from your iOS photo library. So. This isn't a complete solution to your problem, but it can fix it on the other end. Well, and I'll mention, um, I, I kind of steered away from the post-import scenario because there are a bunch of options there, and that wasn't quite what um, what he asked. But I'll mention Power Photos from Fat Cat Software. They are an occasional six-color sponsor. So uh, they just sponsored the site a couple weeks ago, so there's my disclaimer. But I have used it. I mentioned it in the book that I wrote about photos, and it is the successor to their iPhoto library manager product. And basically, it does all sorts of stuff, including deduping, letting you merge libraries, letting you separate li- separate libraries. So if you're trying to do like stuff that photos doesn't do it's worth looking i think they've got a demo um uh version that you can you can try uh with power photos from fat cat so i'll put that in the uh show notes too because yeah, i guess if there isn't a way to fix it on the front end yeah you can detect you can, try you can detect the, the duplicates later and and that that yeah. is not ideal right you'd prefer it to be smart about yep. detecting duplicates but a, a lot of stuff what, writing about photos for the last few years i get a lot of emails are like why doesn't it do this and and my response is always like because it doesn't because Apple I mean like literally my my goal is to show you what you can do and how you can work around it you almost have to have to view the app as a force force of nature almost like look it just doesn't do it so it's like we could complain that's fine about the fact that it doesn't strip out the duplicates in some scenarios uh but it doesn't so what what are you going to do and the answer is find a way to fix that because Apple hasn't fixed it yet so there are some options there Jason, I believe you have some upstream news for me this week. I I, I do. I d- have some upstream news. That's not the theme song for upstream. Nope. I just was trying it out, but it didn't work. A little little horn. Um, uh, well, so last week was something called New Fronts, which is this totally weird thing. There's a to back it up. There's a thing called Upfronts, which is when TV networks go to New York and they do a bunch. It's like a dog and pony show for advertisers, for the biggest advertisers. And what they're trying to do is say, here are all these great things that we're doing, uh, and you should uh, you should give us advertising because aren't we awesome? And it, that means that Upfronts has become also a media dog and pony show for the networks to talk about their new fall seasons and what their strategies are and the new fronts are an attempt by uh like new media companies that are also wanting to reach with advertisers so it's basically like well we want to do upfronts too so we're going to do this thing called new fronts there's also a thing i think called pod fronts that is by like podcast networks that uh yeah. you remember that like where we, we saw like lex mm-hmm. friedman got up on stage and talked about how great mid-roll was and and uh you know and the people from from uh panoply and all that anyway everybody wants to do a dog and pony show in new york city is basically the story because you yep. wouldn't want to be in new york city it's a great city so new fronts was uh hulu youtube netflix uh i think well maybe netflix wasn't there because they don't have any ads anyway hulu was there youtube was there some other uh, streaming services were there and they made some news so hulu was at the new fronts and they announced they have 20 million subscribers they're u.s only they grew from they grew 4 million in i think four or five months so hulu showing a lot of growth uh one of the challenges with hulu is it's a u.s only service right now it's not just that their 20 million subs are u.s only which is actually a pretty good number in the 
U.S., but uh, what's the rest of their strategy? We've talked about how Hulu is going to be, if the Disney-Fox merger goes through, majority owned by Disney, and there's a question of sort of like, what happens to it? What's its fate? Does it keep its other uh, owners, or does Disney buy them out? Does Disney use Hulu as the place where its content that's more adult-oriented, the stuff from Fox and FX, goes to, and maybe even some of the stuff from ABC, instead of going to the other Disney streaming services. Um, The Handmaid's Tale is like their number one show. It's a success across the board among viewers and critics, and it's won a lot of awards, so they they crowed about that a little bit. And they pointed out, again, that their catalog is all about TV, which I think is interesting. Like, it's a TV brand. They have more TV content than any of their competitors. If you think about it, that's kind of interesting, because they've been, as I think Netflix and Amazon have been less interested in having a massive library of old TV shows and things like that. They kind of want some hits, and they want originals, and they want movies hulu is all about tv um and then they also have a live tv service that they introduced that's the over the top you know cable replacement that will show you like shows and channels as they're running live so that's that's what's going on with hulu and then um youtube was also there and they made some news so they, they they premiered their new original series on youtube red cobra kai which is the sequel to the karate kid movies um, which has gotten pretty good reviews, actually, as far as I've seen, which is kind of surprising huh. and funny. Um, and they also gave kind of a weird presentation where I think the, the money line from the CEO of YouTube, who's Susan Wojcicki? Wojcicki? I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that name. I think it's Wojcicki. Wojcicki? All right. It's a Polish yeah. name. Anyway, she mm-hmm. said, there is not a playbook, playbook for how open platforms operate at our scale. So it's an admission of weakness. Why is that important? Well... <laughs> Um, open platforms at scale is all about, remember, she's talking to advertisers. One of the challenges about having ads in uh, an open platform like YouTube is, you guessed it, your ads as these very carefully you know, planned and uh, maybe uptight advertisers are working on their ad campaigns, and then their ad gets put next to something violent, something sexual, something racist. And uh, that that totally happens with YouTube. So or just it, something that becomes controversial, exactly like, for whatever reason. And most advertisers don't want to be attached to anything controversial. They don't. They want to be just blend in and be in the background. Um, YouTube also has its own YouTube TV, live TV over the top streaming service. So there's another another aspect where YouTube is doing that. Hulu is doing that. Um, anyway, I thought those. I thought both of those stories were interesting, just as a way of of uh, YouTube doing some original content that is also interesting because we think of YouTube as a brand that is very much focused on um, young people, and their original content is a show that will appeal to like Gen Xers in terms of nostalgia, which I think is a funny thing. But yeah, uh, but I think they're trying to broaden. I think between this and their and the YouTube TV over the top service, they're trying to like. YouTube Red isn't just for my son, it's for me too, is what they're trying to say there. Right. So that's interesting. The, the person who's probably actually going to be paying the bill in the first place. It's true. It's true. I am the one who pays that bill, so that's exactly right. And then Hulu, I think, is interesting because there's a lot of questions like, I think Hulu is actually a pretty good service, but there are so many different questions about, like, how do they build subscribers? Are they going to go outside the U.S.? What's Disney going to do? Um, because it's potential that in a year or two, what we're going to realize is that Hulu is Disney's worldwide uh, content strategy for streaming stuff that appeals to 
adults. That's not their sports strategy or their uh, Disney branded, Disney Marvel, Star Wars branded thing that's going to skew a little bit younger, but that it's their strategy for everything else. And that would be um, that would be an interesting competitor. Also, if they are all about TV, that gives them another little talking point, right? Like that they they pick up all the TV, whereas Netflix and Amazon maybe are more concerned with their own programming rather than like picking up programming from other places and putting it in their service. So that that I, I'm fascinated by where Hulu's going to go in the next couple of years uh, because it, it, there's a lot of potential there. Or it could just go nowhere. That's also possible. But they do seem to be growing and uh, and they seem to have some sort of a plan. But we'll see. Netflix has released a remix version of the fourth season of Arrested Development. This is super weird, yeah, okay, right? Okay, it's weird, and there's even a weirder backstory here. Beca- okay. Because Mitch Hurwitz, who is the creator of Arrested Development, he actually did this a long time ago. We talked about this on the podcast I do with Tim Goodman in July of 2016. So a year and a half ago, wow. we talked about this. Coming up two years ago, we talked about this, and Tim wrote a story we can put in the show notes. Um, in July of 2016, Mitch Hurwitz said he and told Tim he'd recut the original fourth season. So this was the Netflix original season of Arrested Development. It got kind of mixed reviews. It was weirdly shot because they got the different actors at different points. And so what he they ended up releasing this thing that was almost like Rashomon style. It was like different perspectives. It was 15 episodes long. Um, they episodes were. Keeping in mind a standard sitcom um, and the first three seasons of Arrested Development were about 22 minutes each. These episodes were 30 minutes all the way up to like 42 minutes long. They were longer. There were fewer of them. There were 15. And they were in these kind of blocks of like this character's story. And you'd see them cross over with other characters. And then the next episode, you'd see a different character's story. And you'd see them cross over. It was a very different format for the show. And, And my daughter, who's been watching Arrested Development, had that same comment. And she doesn't know the history. She was just like... Like, yeah, that four seasons are really strange. Like, it's not like the first three seasons. Well, what Mitch Hurwitz told Tim in July 16 is he actually went back and edited a new version of season four that works like the traditional first three seasons. He got Ron Howard to do new narration. They use some shots that are not the same shots. It's a different thing. It's got some different material in it. And it's 22-minute episodes. Like, it's it's Hmm. just the old show, the way it was done instead of this new format and that he had done that and Netflix didn't want it basically. And he said it was just sitting on a shelf or probably more accurately sitting on a hard drive somewhere, but, but he had gone back and made a new version of the show. And at the time Tim wrote about it, people were tweeting about it. Everybody who's an arrested development fan went bananas about this. And I was baffled by why Netflix wouldn't do anything with it because it's like the same content and, you know, other than a contractual thing, it's possible that, like, they would need to pay uh, 20th Television, I think, is the is the producer of it, more money for an alternate version. But I kept thinking to myself, streaming shows and services, like, this is the perfect way. Like, yeah, put out an alternate version. That's cool. Why don't you do that? And why wouldn't you do that if you're Netflix? Well, 
almost two years later, and with a fifth season apparently in production, yes. now Netflix apparently, my guess is Netflix thought, well, now we can start warming up people for the new season of Arrested Development and get them excited about it by doing this recut version of season four. Perhaps this is why they would pay the money and do the promotion to do it. But they finally did it. After sitting on a, probably sitting in a hard drive of Mitch Hurwitz for a couple of years, uh, last Friday they released this remixed Arrested Development season four. So people who are fans of that show and maybe who didn't like season four or didn't watch it um, might want to give it a go because it's apparently a more standard take consistent with the first three seasons. And I just love Mm -hmm. this story because uh, this is... This is a creator taking advantage of the fact that they've got all this content to do an alternate version of a show that they made, and uh, the the streaming service can just post it, and then you've got an alternate version. It's a little bit like how a lot of the sitcoms, especially the Michael Shore sitcoms, so like The Office and Parks and Recreation and The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a lot of those shows, they would drop... The, the the episode would air at 22 minutes and then on iTunes the next day they would drop like a 38 minute version that was the one that they wanted to release but it didn't fit in the time slot and in most cases those are the versions that are on Netflix which I think is great because that means in the long run that's the real version of the show not the one that ran on a network with commercials and I think again that's the brilliance of the the world we live in now that you can do that that there's not just sort of like we do it once and then we walk away forever. And how could we even offer another version of it? And here, Mitch Hurwitz has done an entire different season of his same season. That's It's really cool. So I haven't watched them yet, but I'm really excited to watch them because I think it's a great idea. It's just strange that it took two years. So the new season's coming out uh, at the end of May, and they released a new trailer. Oh, good. That goes alongside it. So there you go. That, so it's part of the promotion of the new season. Yeah. yeah. And something that I find interesting, though, the original season four it's been replaced with this new one. Oh, interesting. So it's not alongside. They just they just put it in there. I can't find I can't find the original season four. Interesting. It just says season one, two, three, and then season four remix, Fatal Consequence Fateful Consequences. Interesting. That's, that's interesting. The list you get now. Yeah, well it's also possible that Netflix and, and Hurwitz talked about it and they're like, Yeah, this is better. Nobody liked it the yeah. way we did it. Let's just replace it and never because at this point you're viewers of that are people who are binging mm-hmm. which means they are they are not seeing the context of the show going off the air for a few years and then coming back instead all they're seeing is um is that this thing happened and you know it, we move from season three last episode to season four first episode and like whoa what happened so you, you just remove it and it's not a problem anymore all right should we take a break jason yeah it's a great idea Today's show is brought to you by StoryWorth, the easiest way to share your family stories. StoryWorth makes it easy and enjoyable for your loved ones to share their life stories with weekly emailed story prompts and questions that you might not think to ask. Then at the end of the year, they're going to get a sto- all their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. It's sleek with a black and white interior color cover with up to 480 pages in length. This means that you and your loved ones can preserve the memories that you want to share and even pass them on to future generations. Here's how StoryWorth works. You buy a subscription for someone important to you, and each week, StoryWorth will send them an email of a question about their life. They can email an answer back, 
or they can even record it over the phone as well. And after a year, these stories will be printed and bound into that beautiful book so they can be kept, maybe even put on the shelf and built up over time. StoryWorth is a great way to learn more about someone important to you. The questions are designed to evoke entertaining, surprising, and moving responses. And StoryWorth is also a great way of staying in touch with family members who maybe live a little further away than you'd like. You can write the stories and upload photos by email, but you can also do this on the web or in their app. You can share the stories of as many people as you want. You just can invite them to see them. And everything can be saved and edited on storyworth.com. And all of your data is secure and everything is private by default. So you get to control who sees your stories or the stories of your loved ones. For my family, Storyworth is a great thing because we're not, it's not that we're spread out. Like I totally understand that, right? That like, oh, if we're, if you're spread out, it's difficult, but we're just, we just don't get to see, spend a lot of time together as a group. Like it's just not really, everyone's busy. It's just not really a thing that we get to do. Right. And being able to share this sort of stuff digitally is a great way to stay connected. Like, so one of the questions I saw in Storyworth was about who inspires you. And this is something that I never would have thought about asking a member of my family. Like it's just a really interesting question that will bring some fascinating answers, but I just never would have thought to ask it myself. And that's the value of something like this. Like I'm keen to see how the answer to these types of questions could relate to the way that my life has gone. Like what parallels do I have to people that I care about? It's really cool. So if you're looking for a meaningful, maybe even a last minute Mother's Day gift, StoryWorth is perfect for someone you care about. So now is the time to place your order. Listeners of this show can get $20 off their subscription by going to storyworth.com slash upgrade. That is $20 off when you go to storyworth.com slash upgrade and sign up today. Storyworth, a new way to bring the family together. Thank you to Storyworth for their support of this show and Relay FM. Yeah. So over the weekend, there the there was an anniversary, a very important anniversary. It was the 20th anniversary of the introduction of... The iMac. Yeah. And this is the computer we know, the, the iMac G3, as it became kind of colloquially known later on because there were multiple versions of it. But this is the Bondi blue and white case that you'll, you'll be very familiar with. Um, so this was, this happened over the weekend. It's been 20 years since it was introduced on stage by Steve Jobs, uh, in 1998. And I want to talk about a few things about this, Jason, but what I don't necessarily want to go through is the introduction itself, because we've done that already. We did. Um, in May 2016, we had Stephen Hackett on the show, because at this time, I think he was coming towards the end of his project of collecting all of the IMAX. Right. Um, and we spoke about kind of the announcement, and you told some stories about what it was like when you were working at, Ma- you were at Macworld then, right? Uh, yeah, I was in, I was in Macworld then, right. Yeah, no, Stephen told his stories, I told my stories, and you sat patiently while we talked, and perhaps doodled, or colored, or went away. <laughs> I cannot... And I will not answer uh, that question. So <laughs> I wanted to look at kind of in context 20 years ago, this product, and then kind of looking at how it relates to products of today. So I think first I wanted to kind of get from you a feeling of this iMac, what mark did it leave on Apple? Like, do we see anything else that, that is a parallel today? good or bad with this product that maybe because of its success kind of became ingrained in the company? I mean, it, it it's always hard to point at one thing or one moment and say that's when it all changed, right? Because the truth is that, that what they said later is they 
started this project the day Steve Jobs came back in July of the previous year. Like that, that was when they kicked it off, and that there were this is the Columbus project, and they they uh, ended up shipping these things. And there was uh, internally there was a lot of turmoil. In fact, you and I were I bet we're fortunate to spend some time with. Uh, a friend of ours who was actually who was on the <laughs> iMac software team, the original iMac software team. Like they were working on this for a long time, and 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 there was a lot of there. So so we can point to the moment that it surfaced publicly and say there's the moment. But obviously, huge amounts of work went in before then, and after that announcement to get that product to ship. Right? I mean, it was it was a huge amount of work. But um, it is on another level. I can you know, point to it and say. Uh, what what do they have here? Like they took the old ports away. The, the, it, it's actually funny. Stephen Hack and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, it's fun. the MacWorld story on this actually mentions something called Chirp, which not a lot of people remember. And I may actually dig through my old magazines and write something about this, or Stephen will. That there was this idea to create this common hardware reference platform, which is I think what oh. Chirp stood for. And it was the idea of, like, could you make a PowerPC-based computer that was, like, a standard PC, just like an Intel PC was a standard PC? Something that everybody who made a PowerPC-based computer, and at that point, there were, like, different companies making them, not just Mac clones oh, even, okay. but, like, for different operating mm-hmm. systems and all. And IBM really wanted people to use, and Motorola, to use the PowerPC, and they thought maybe it would be an, a, a viable, like, alternative to an Intel standard PC would be this Chirp standard so PC. was the idea that by doing this other people would make max is that the idea well right? i mean i think that the clones was part of that story but it was also the idea sure. that like if you were motorola or ibm or somebody else and you wanted to do or b actually is another example with the bos yep. which was considered at one point a possibility as a replacement for the mac os that if you if you or or quite honestly if it had been successful microsoft could have done a power pc version of windows and written right. to the common platform the idea was they wanted to create this common platform that basically any computer that was running a P, uh, power pc processor would look like and it and it didn't happen basically there there were some chirp max some chirp, chirp devices shipped including i think the motorola mac clone was a chirp computer although i'm not 100 percent on that because there was motorola did actually ship its own mac clone at one point but um, it all it, it all fell apart, and of course Steve Jobs killed the clones, and that was the end of it. But what, why I bring up Chirp now? In the Clone Wars, right? That's in the that's, Clone. Yeah, that was right. That, they fought. Yeah, Darth Vader and Steve Wars. Jobs fought together in the Clone Wars. That's right. <laughs> um, that's tell your kids. That's the story. So uh, I bring it up because. Uh, it, it in the Macworld article, uh, it actually quotes an Apple product manager as saying that the iMac project picked up a lot of the stuff from Chirp. So even though Apple didn't make a Chirp Mac, it it uh, used that stuff in order to you know simplify and modernize, and it still used that as a jumping off point in terms of building the iMac. And what that got them was a modern Mac and a break from the past. And I think what's interesting mm-hmm. about that is not Apple participating in kind of a an industry consortium to build something which is not a thing that they do a lot uh today but the idea that apple used that tech
tech to do what it wanted to do, which is make a clean break. And you see echoes of that in all sorts of other times that they have dropped features. We joke about like all the features that get dropped from Apple's devices. The optical drives went away at some point and USB-A went away on like the MacBook only has the one thing. The headphone jack went away on the eye on the iPhone. Uh, the When they went from dock connector to lightning, people complained about that, like that Apple is fearless about doing that. So that's part of it. Um, and the design design forward is part of it too. Like there were a couple of Macs. I, I read a story today that said this was the one where uh, Apple's design language came forward. And it's like, well, again, the story's a little more complicated than that. The Power Mac G3, the beige one, had this weird plastic like green translucent plastic thing on it that was like it was like johnny ive trying to let me out let me out i want to do something interesting i put a green plastic He's thing somewhere out of the beige right? cases and then they did i don't think the wall street powerbook g3 gets enough credit those were crazy looking at the time they had the black laptops with kind of a rubberized surface and the white apple logo um on the back like they were so different from the previous uh, powerbook g3 that that preceded them that um they that you could tell that apple was doing some really different things from design standpoint even though that was probably a product that was in the works and at most they sort of agreed to pump up the design stuff a little bit and make it look a little more interesting in the time that they had and that came out a couple months before the imac was announced right so you could get the sense that things were starting to happen design wise but then you look at the imac and like the imac design is unlike anything that was out there it was incredibly influential in the computer industry and outside the computer industry basically i would say in the plastics industry everybody who made plastic things suddenly said oh we can finally somebody is um allowing us because i think they could always do it right the question was like nobody wanted translucent plastic and colored plastic brightly colored plastic and once Mm -hmm. apple did the imac everybody like every kitchen appliance and clock radio and everything else was available in a translucent bright plastic version it became premium right in the same way that making everything white became premium after the ipod it's like everybody agreed that nothing could be anything but black white or beige and then apple mm-hmm. was like yeah we're making a bright blue computer and good luck just deal with it and 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 the everybody was like oh people like colors and fun maybe we should do that and that and that was a big part of it too so i i think you see that today i uh, will use this as my monthly request for more color in apple devices yeah well i i think you see it but it kind comes and goes right and right now apple stuff is like well we we, we it's everybody get excited because not only is there silver now there's a slightly darker silver that we call space gray and it's not like a sh- more shades of gray it's very exciting and occasionally some product will get gold and then there will be the product here's that, red here's that one red one <laughs> yeah, yeah that's six months later did you wait for the red one so yes i agree there, there should be more color in apple products that would be something that i would like them to uh come back to but if you remember like the ipod nanos and all of that like they that was the same kind of approach too so i i think that those are some of the places where you see this culture that steve jobs was basically building at that point that continues on to this day that is in the dna of apple and the imac was the first like full representation of all of that and it evolved and changed as everything does but i think that it was a a, a clear first 100 percent step in that direction
So whilst if you look at any kind of successful company, person, entity, you can kind of draw a line between all of the dots uh, f- to see if they're, you know, to, to, to go to the success. You know, you could be like, oh, they had that teacher and then they went to that class or that kind of thing. But I wonder if we have a special case here when it comes to the iMac G3 when I ask this question, which is, would we have the iPhone today if the iMac never existed? I, so... Going back to my previous point about like pointing to a moment in my article that I wrote on six colors about this, I said, and again, I gave, I hesitate because there's no such thing as a moment that is all, um, stagecraft. Like it's year, it's months and years of work that lead to that moment. But in terms of the outside world, if you watch that, that keynote from the Flint center and I, I wasn't there because at that point. Apple, I suspect Apple was calling us in for briefings, thinking they had something to show us. And then and in the chaos of the early days of Steve Jobs, then they ended up not because we had a couple briefings where like nothing happened. And we're like, why did we come down here? You've got nothing to say. And so for this one, it was a little like the boy who cried wolf or like, uh, yeah, sure. Apple's got something else. And so only our editor in chief went. But if you watch that video, the first half hour of it or, or 20 minutes of it, it's amazing. It's like. Steve Jobs is sort of like saying, we're not going to (laughs) die. He puts up a chart about employee retention and says, people aren't quitting at Apple as fast as they used to. That's really good. So we're doing better. This is no longer a place that people are trying to escape. I'm really pleased to report to you today that Apple's back on track. When you have great people, the most important thing is to not lose them. When I came back to Apple last summer, Apple was losing a lot of them. The attrition rate annualized was 33%. And I'm very pleased to say that 10 months later, the attrition rate is 15%. And part of that is because people now see how Apple can win again. Another part of that is because we've made Apple a much more entrepreneurial place. All of the key employees have lots of stock options. Boy, those presentations are different then. Huh? Right? <laughs> and, and it was like, you know, and the Mac sales are going pretty well. And, you know, we had the PowerBook G3, that Wall Street, and, and it's really good. And we're going to, I think they made like some adjustments to it, but it basically was had been out for a couple of months. There was a lot of Phil Schiller coming out on stage to demo like various PCs from Compaq and Dell against uh max so that they could show the megahertz myth because in those days what they were trying mm-hmm. to do is say that even though the power g3 processor had a lower clock speed than a bunch of the pentium 2s that they were actually faster um that that you know you couldn't just compare the megahertz that you had to say like this 333 g3 was actually faster than a 400 pentium 2 and but they had to do like bake-offs where they like start photoshop results and then steve and phil would stand there and watch as the computers like worked in split screen it was super weird tell us about your computer here well, i'm glad here to come out and try to take you on head to head because you asked me to go out and get the biggest and the best and i did um, this is the brand new Compact Amarta 7800. It's got a Pentium 2, the new mobile Pentium 2, 266. That's the fastest speed it runs at. It's just been announced. You can't get much better than this. I'm scared. <laughs> so we're just going to have to find out. Now, up on this screen on your left, we have the Compact Armada Pentium 2, 266. In the middle, we have our new PowerBook G3 running at 233 megahertz. And on the far right, we have the G3 running at 292 megahertz. Of course, both of these machines are less money than the Compaq. So let's go ahead. What we're going to do now is we're going to run Photoshop, what a lot of our customers like to do and have been dying to do on a fast portable. So we've got Photoshop here, and we've got exactly the same file on all of these computers. But it's all about, like, 
I need to justify that Apple still exists because you all remember last year and figured we were going out of business. And now I need to completely change the narrative. It's amazing how hard he's working to get people to believe that Apple is not about to die. Because you have to do that before you unveil a new product. Right, right. Well, and he knows what's coming, right? He knows what's yeah. coming. But what's amazing about it, and he, he at one point he's like, and, and especially when you see what we have today, right? Like, haha, I'm going to tease what I've got coming. All of that said, the moment that he takes the little drape off of the iMac and reveals it. This is what they look like today. And I would uh, like to take the privilege of showing you what they're going to look like from today on. This is iMac. Thank you. This is iMac. The whole thing is translucent. You can see into it. It's so cool. That is literally the moment that Apple went from dead to alive. Like, literally, that is the moment. And from that moment to 20 years later, it has been up, up, up for Apple. Like, that was the moment. Without that moment... They probably wouldn't be around. No, because the Mac, although the Mac was kind of turning around, I think if Apple had just continued doing beige products and all of that, like, would they have gotten to the iPod? Would they have been able to sell the iPod? Would the popularity of the iPod have given them more gas because they weren't just getting the gas from sales of the iPod, but they got way boosted. Uh, the, the Mac sales got boosted because of the halo effect where people finally were having positive experiences with Apple as a brand that they had never um, they never had before. Again, it's it, we, we've gone long enough now that people forget the iPod halo effect. The iPod was, for most people, the first Apple product they ever bought. And they and and they were like oh this is great or they went into an apple store and then they saw the mac and they're like oh apple makes a computer this is way better than that pc that i have i'm going to get one of these too and that was that was the infusion of energy and cash that apple needed in the 2000s in order to keep going and they i don't think they would have gotten there without the imac which was a hit because it was different but also because it was priced pretty well and because it was the right time because up to that point so many computers the idea was well, I need a computer at home so I can do some of my work when I'm at home. And so it needs to be a PC and it needs to do everything that my office PC does. But by like the late 90s, the really what you needed was um, you wanted to get on the internet and maybe check your email. And you could do that on a Mac. So like there was a real opportunity for the Mac to no longer be seen as this weird incompatible computer, but to be seen as a, an appliance that lets you get internet uh-huh. and email at home and that jeff goldblum narrated ad where it's like step one plug it in step two get connected and they plug in the phone cable there's no step three right like that was the whole appeal of the imac is you just plop one of these things down in your living room it looks kind of neat and weird and fun and you're on the internet and it's all just you know you don't have to hook up a monitor and do anything like that it's like super simple all in one and that was powerful, and they sold a lot of them very quickly. It became the Mac product, the definitive Mac for a very long time afterward, and set Apple on its way to the, you know, to the iPod and ultimately to the iPhone. But they would never, they would never have gotten there without a product like this because Mac sales were kind of ebbing, and everybody, 
there was nothing to be excited about. They were they there had been so pre- much press about Apple dying mm-hmm. that there needed to be a turnaround. And you know, in the background, they're working on OS 10 because they came when Jobs came back. He came back with Next Step, and they knew they were going to do a new operating system. But they they didn't have it ready yet. So this is not an OS 10 device when it ships. It's a it's an OS 8 six device, I think. And uh, you know, the, so there's a lot of stuff bubbling in the background. But the hardware alone got people excited about this computer and. Um, and uh, that was that was how Apple changed its fate. Is the iMac G3 a product that can only come from a struggling company? Like, could Apple be that kind of daring again? Or is this always like a Hail Mary to do something so far out of left field? I think on your average company, this is not the kind of product that they could do. But I think that's what app what apple is trying to do all the time i think apple at its best and what you know, again they don't they don't succeed a lot of the time and they do have to maintain existing products and and iterate them and all of that but they also have those moments where they take a leap and i think steve jobs wanted that in Apple's corporate culture. I think that's the thing that he always wanted Apple to strive for is what's the next big thing. We're going to take another crack at this and we're not going to be afraid of upsetting the install base. Like, you know, we laugh about it now about how Mac users were kind of all up in arms about the iMac because it broke compatibility with literally everything. You think the headphone jack thing is bad when they took the headphone jack off? You had every Mac for the previous like 10 years had shipped with SCSI ports and ADB ports and serial ports and they're all gone in one system they're gone gone never to return you can buy at dongles you can go to dongle town dongle town was smaller then mike but it was still there mm-hmm. out on the frontier on the like main Do- road dongle hamlet yeah, it was more of a dongle village at that point. Dongle but village. It was yeah. definitely there. It wasn't incorporated yet. Didn't have a lot of tall buildings, but boy, it was there because I had, I still have some USB serial adapters and USB ADB adapters. But you know, but they did. They they made that break. It was a big deal. But part of what Jobs wanted Apple to think collectively in its culture was the users will come along. If there's a benefit. Now, there are positives and negatives to that approach, and all the conversation about the Mac laptops over the last couple of years has definitely, it cuts both ways. But there is something to be said, like that iMac was, the point was that it wasn't for those existing Mac users. Like, it was for new users who wanted to come to the Mac. The Mac wasn't selling enough to just the 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 faithful, to just the install base. They needed to sell to new people, and the new people didn't care. And in the end, the new people would benefit from having USB, where you could literally like, this was the era where if you wanted to detach your hard drive or attach a hard drive, you had to shut down the computer and then unplug everything and then or replug it and then turn it back on. And USB is hot pluggable, basically, so you can just unplug or unplug and it's fine. Like that was huge. And and how long did Apple just kind of putter around with the, this old this old stuff? So I think Steve Jobs wanted to st- instill in Apple the feeling that if they felt that there was a benefit to ditching something like the lightning port or or not the lightning port like the dock connector for the lightning port or like the headphone jack and we can argue about like the headphone jack was that a good idea and usb c for usba but you can see why they do it 
they do it because Steve Jobs wanted them to have that culture of like break the rules, throw the old thing away. The iPod Nano is a great example of that, where they followed that on, um, whatever, five, six, seven years later, where they had the iPod Mini and it was incredibly successful and it was more successful than the iPod and they killed it because the Nano was better and it was a totally different product. And that was super weird, but that was the culture was throw the old thing away. We want to be our own replacement. Flash storage is the future. Let's, let's just kill the old product. And that worked for them. So that is, I would even say that's the thing when we criticize Apple and they often do deserve criticize criticism about it. What I like about them is they are always trying this stuff and it doesn't always work and they deserve criticism when it doesn't work. But I do like that they try and that comes from Steve Jobs instilling that in their culture. Like look at the iMac. It's a great example. Like they just made a break and it worked for them. And there's something to be said for that because the argument is if you don't make a break because you're super comfortable, someone else will do it and they will eat your lunch. So you better be your own replacement, build your own replacement, be your best competition. And I do think that Apple at its best when it's working at its best is doing that. Happy birthday, iMac. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's funny. I have on my wall a uh, 20th anniversary of the Macintosh cover from Macworld. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've come all the way, I guess it's 14 years later, because <laughs> we've come all the way to 20th anniversary of the iMac. Amazing. The I mean, the iMac now is older than the original Mac was when the iMac was introduced. That's the thing that blows me away. A lot older, but... That's how time works. This episode is brought to you by Simple Contacts. It's amazing when an app takes a task that you don't want to have to do over and over again and just makes it so fuss-free. When it can take time away from you having to go somewhere and wait in a waiting room. This is the sort of stuff that Simple Contacts can take away from you because it is the easy way to renew your contact lens prescription. You'll be able to reorder your contacts from anywhere you want in just minutes. So like if you're in the grocery store and you're like, oh, I need new contacts. You don't have to like call someone and make an appointment. You just grab your phone and you order them. Super simple. All you need to do first is complete their online self-guided vision test. It takes less than five minutes. You can do it from wherever you are right now. And what that will do is make sure that the prescription that you're telling them you need is to still an accurate prescription for you. This vision test costs just $20, which for comparison, an appointment without insurance could cost over $200. Simple Contacts wants to save you money and time. Now, I need to let you know that this test, whilst amazing, is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Simple Contacts is just checking that you've got the prescription correct uh, so they can renew your lenses based on that prescription. They're not writing completely new prescriptions or examining your eye health. You still have to go and get that done, but when you got that prescription, you'll be able to order those uh, contacts from wherever you want, whenever you want. You'll be able to order exactly what you need right from the palm of your hand because they have all of the brands that you love with options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. Now, Mr. Jason Snow, I know that you, uh, your, I think that your contact brand is tricky. I think I heard you mentioning before. Yeah, you- I've got astigmatism and it took us quite a while to find uh, one that would actually be big enough that it would not... I, w- I would like look to the side and I could see the edge of my contact lens floating around. It was not good. And we finally found one that worked for me. But it was a long process. And so I thought when I started using uh, simple contacts, I was like, they're not going to have it. Well, they, I put it in. They're like, yep, we got it. <laughs> 
where do you want us to ship it? It was like, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> so they've got, if you're thinking that you, you are, have something special about you and therefore it's going to be too complicated for simple context, that's not necessarily the case. Although they will, you know, they're also very serious about the fact that they're not a replacement for your eye doctor and for eye exams. So they will ask you a bunch of questions. And if there's something that's weird about your eye health specifically, um, you don't have to worry because they will they will tell you if they don't want you to order with them, which is I think a good policy. Like if you've got something wrong, go ahead and try because um, if it's not a problem, they'll let you order the contacts. And if it is a problem, they'll be like, you know what, you need to go back to your doctor. We're not gonna we're not gonna touch that because you need to see that professional um, in order to order more contacts, which I think is a good way of, of balancing it. I agree. As a listener of this show, you can get $30 off your contact lenses. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash ahoy, and you can enter ahoy at checkout as well. That's simplecontacts.com slash ahoy, that's A-H-O-Y, or just use the code ahoy for $30 off. Our thanks to Simple Contacts for their support of this show. So, Apple results were last week, and there's it was a, it was mostly good right i don't think that it was there was any there weren't any blockbusters in either direction really they they they, i think they slightly beat their their estimates they Mm -hmm. increased their revenue year over year they had good results in china even though people were worried about that the ipad did okay mac went down at the smidge mac went well mac went down in units but was flat in revenue or flat in units and up in revenue it was one of those things where basically what you were seeing is that the even though it seemed flat uh revenue was better and that was probably at least in part because of the imac pro just because the imac pro boost is expensive and they they introduced it so they sold a lot of them um relatively speaking you know maybe not a huge amount but enough mm-hmm. to boost revenue the, the ratio right we, we figured out average selling price by looking at the ratio of the uh, sales units to the sales revenue and it went one of the revenue went up so the average selling price went up which i point at and say well they the imac pro was there and that's a much more expensive computer than they usually sell and therefore it it dragged it up a little bit but yeah it was a it was i mean they get routine it was a huge quarter apple makes so much money but in the end uh most of it was pretty much what you'd expect it was the continuing story not anything kind of revelatory but there was one little thing Mm. which is kind of interesting there was because it was about a very big thing so since the release of the iphone 10 there have been many analysts' reports, and this we saw this last quarter. We saw it this quarter as well. Last quarter it was disproven by numbers. This quarter it was disproven by numbers. That people have been saying that iPhone 10 sales have been struggling. This has been a thing that has been like even like the day before. I think Bloomberg published this big thing. You know, oh, the iPhone 10 is going to be down. It's been a big disappointment, and they're going to forecast it down again, and and the, they're going to miss their forecast. None of this happened, um, and Apple was saying that it's their top selling phone and has been their top selling phone since the day it was introduced. Every week, too, not just per quarter, but every single yep. week, it's the number one. They're selling more phone. iPhone tens than than any other phone. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to know what the exact mix is, but it's like they're selling more iPhone tens than like they are pluses. You know, I don't right. know if maybe when you add both eights together, like, but you know, it's, it but they, is yeah, their most they don't talk popular about that. single handset. Exactly. 
and again, right, like they, in their forecasts, they forecast an increase in profit, um, and re- sorry, increase in revenue year over year. And the literal only way Apple can do that is by selling more iPhones, right? Like there's, there's nothing else that will drive the revenue so significantly Correct. for them currently. It has to be selling more iPhones. Yes. So what is going on? What, wh- why, why are analysts consistently having this thought? The iPhone 10 is tanking. Well, I, I have a theory about the iPhone 10 one. I mean, uh, there is an overarching theory, which is that, uh, which I, I don't know enough about the investing world to talk about other than to say that there is one theory that says that the Apple bears are manipulating stock. right that they literally are contrarian because they're suppressing the apple stock so that they can make money on the apple stock which again it's a conspiracy theory and i don't know enough about that world but you can see that though right like i mean it's it doesn't seem like a a wild like it doesn't seem like something from fiction like of course i can understand that it's either that or or there's something about apple that brings out people who are um who don't understand reality um and maybe that's true too because that's been true for years but but the thing is you can correct me if i'm wrong but in recent times this this feels a little bit out of place yes well the iphone 10 thing has been going on for a while now and i think I've got, I've got so I've got my theory. So here it is. Mm-hmm. First off, if we go back to before the iPhone was uh, ten was announced, when you and I were talking about it, and it was this theoretical high end phone and all of that, there was a lot of consternation about like how are they going to do it? How are they going to make it so that they sell this one? Are people going to want the other one? Are people going to just defer purchases because they don't want to buy the what we now know is the iPhone eight when the iPhone ten exists? That seems to not have happened. But that was the beginning of a narrative that you could pick up, and I think some people picked it up a negative narrative like apple's changing their strategy fear fear right so we get into the release and uh there's some skepticism and it continues to build and there was like a supply chain report at some point that said that a couple of apple suppliers were were um cutting uh had their orders cut including i think for the uh for the oled screens from samsung and you can see how people start to make those assumptions based upon that right you know yeah although yeah. there were some just totally weird assumptions like the one that said the iphone 10 is end of life which i can't tell whether that was somebody who <laughs> yeah. doesn't know what they're talking about or whether there was a mistranslation or misunderstanding because they're going to stop making the current iphone 10 and do a new iphone 10 for the fall which is probably closer to the truth right that it's not like they're yeah. killing the iphone 10 but that they're going to end the they're going to stop making that one and make the new one uh which who knows whether they'll do that or not i think it's i think it's possible i think it's likely in fact but um so what ended up happening also let's back up and say what do we say when there are sources that are anonymous sources or that are insider sources you always have to ask what do they have to gain by sharing this information and in the mm-hmm. case of suppliers what they have to gain is blaming someone else for their bad results because they didn't sell as many of these things that they usually supply so they say oh well our results are going to be bad because apple didn't buy as many it's apple's fault apple's having trouble it's not us it's not us we're great apple's having trouble so that's all going on in the background and then the results come out and it's like no the iphone 10 is still the best-selling iphone uh iphone sales are good where is this disaster and i I think apple made those statements about the iphone 10 specifically to bat down those rumors and say nope you're wrong here's my theory if you look at the average selling price of the iphone 
the holiday quarter and when the iPhone 10 had just come out and you look at the average selling price of the iPhone for this most recent quarter, January, February, March, it's lower sequentially. It's higher year over year because the iPhone 10 is more expensive and the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus are more expensive than the 7 and 7 Plus were. Let's not forget that, that Apple raised the price on their other phones too. So year over year, the average selling price is up, but sequentially it's down a little bit. What does that mean? And my guess is what that means is that the iPhone 10 sold an awful lot at the very beginning. And the gap between it and the other iPhone models was greater. And since it's a more expensive product, the ASP was higher. And that after that initial burst of iPhone 10 sales, over the next three months in this new quarter, they came down a little bit. They're still number one, but they're not as far ahead of the 8 and 8 Plus as they were. Yeah, they haven't they haven't done a lap around the course, right? right. Like you know, number two is catching up. Which is maybe not not shocking given that there was the pent up demand for the iPhone ten and so that there were right. an awful lot of those sold. I think it's impressive that the iPhone ten did as well as it did um in that quarter because it was only available for a third of it. <laughs> exactly. You and also you'd think that like a a one thousand dollar phone will probably do its best numbers at two points when it's released and the holiday quarter. And it was like simultaneous two. Right. Uh, yeah. And so, like, you know, that's when that's going to happen. And as you say, it happens at the same time. So here's my theory. My theory is that Apple looked at how well it did in December and said, whoa, it's going to do this gap away from the eight for its life. This is what it's going to be. So this is how many we need to make. And then as it got into that first calendar quarter of this year, beginning of this year, they started to see that that's not really where it was going to be. It was going to still be above the other phones, but not quite as high up. And that means that they bought too many components for what the actual selling rate was. And that means they have more inventory. And Luca, the CFO of Apple, said on the analyst call last week, basically that. He said, yeah, we ended up with a little more inventory and it'll work itself out. And that was very pointed, uh, pointed response to a pointed question about essentially the rumors that they had cut production of the iPhone X. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? I he he kind of shrugged it off as like, look, it happens. We had a little more inventory, and we'll it'll it'll work itself out, you know, soon, and it's not a big deal. Um, and the question was like, oh, breathless, oh, iPhone ten was doomed. What happened? Uh, the truth is, I think they looked at December and thought the iPhone ten was going to sell a bit more than it actually is selling. Yeah, they may have gotten a little bit overexcited, right? Or as Tim Cook said, we won the Super Bowl, but but not not by as many points as we would have liked to. <laughs> which is a weird metaphor, <laughs> but you could sort of see it like we're very pa- proud of the product and it's great and it, and it is our number one product, even if, you know, it didn't win by 30 points or whatever, it still won the Super Bowl and it still gets the ring. That's what he was trying to say. Yep. And I think that's I think that's the source of this entire rumor. I think the source of this rumor is that Apple, in the natural course of things, and again, you might not even notice this if this weren't Apple and everybody wants to know everything about Apple. I think Apple made a judgment in December and then they looked in January and they're like, oh. It's a little less than we thought. So let's, and, but we already have them in the process of we bought, bought the screens and we bought the components and we're going to start producing them, which means we're going to end up with a little more inventory of iPhone 10s that we want, but we know the demand is still there. And so we will, we will dial back on our orders and that'll get us back in balance and we'll be able to st- continue to make as many iPhone 10s as we can sell 
Um, but we have a little, there's a little hump. It's like a snake eating a pig or something. And there's the bulge and the bulge moves through, you know, okay. A cartoon snake eating a cartoon pig. Probably. I don't know about actual snakes and pigs. Um, you know, and it just, it'll work its way through and then, and then out the other side. And then that, that's it, right? Like they made an estimate. It was a little high. They, they put it into balance, but meanwhile they had, they had cranked up the machine a little bit. So they got to crank the machine back down to get it in balance. I suspect mm-hmm. that's it. That's the entire story of, oh, the iPhone 10 is terrible and doomed and they're going to stop making it. All is sourced from the fact that Apple made a judgment in December and then in January or February made a slightly different judgment to back off a little bit. And that's it. That's your whole story. But I guess that's a window into how supply chain details and people who want to break stories about Apple and make big speculation about like that moment when Apple finally takes a big stumble will lead you to places that maybe aren't actual places. (laughs) And in this case, I think that's what it is. It seems like the expectation, and I understand it, is that it's got to happen eventually. So... Sure. Maybe it's next quarter, right? Like, and I think that's where a lot of this is coming from that, like, any indication that this might be the quarter will set people into a tailspin. What is the greatest enemy of attention? I was going to say of journalism, of, of being an analyst, but really, what's the greatest enemy of attention? It's attention's arch enemy boredom the usual is boring and nobody clicks through on stories and and listens to analysts about boring usual business as usual right Mm -hmm. no one wants to read that story of like oh it's gonna be all right so if i tell you it's not fun i have insider information that apple is going to kind of continue on its upward trajectory this phone sales are going to be pretty solid the services are going to continue to go up they're going to introduce new products and in the end apple is not one of these companies that's going to burn out and fade away it's just going to kind of be boring and grow slowly and make huge amounts of money then if i if i could come back from the future and tell you that like it's not going to stop analysts and writers from hoping that something happens because that's boring. It's like, come on, do something, do something. It's the same thing when we talked about like the Apple Watch and people are like, this is why, why Apple must release a watch and why it must be the next iPhone and why it must be a game changer. It's like, must? Like, as long as the iPhone is growing and doing well, Apple must not do the, anything. They, they don't must anything at all. All Apple must do is keep making good iPhones. That's all Apple must do. Essentially <laughs> true. Essentially true. If Apple yeah. keeps making good iPhones and the iPhone keeps selling for a very long time, that's all Apple must do. Now, they must find the next thing for when the iPhone is no longer, when smartphones are no longer the product category that everybody cares mm-hmm. about. That may be a very long time. And that's part of the problem here. It's like, come on, I'm I'm just in my career as an analyst, writer, whatever. Right now, I don't want to wait 15 years for the next big transition. I want something big to happen right now. Change, change the world again. I need yeah, that. Right now. And right. it's not because Apple needs to. It's because we want to see it collectively. And that's a more interesting story. And so that's yeah. why I think these things are going to continue, even if apple in fact even more so if apple is just a boring incredibly popular successful company because boring doesn't sell boring is is the the enemy of attention and and uh i think that that leads to things getting hyped up that are are nothing which is not to say that apple couldn't do something that is really deserving of attention that they couldn't have a flop that they couldn't make a terrible decision that leads to harming their business totally could happen but in the absence of that people will still write stuff like this because they're desperate for something to say and modern apple is in many ways as we we pick through like where they're going with the mac and stuff 
stuff in iOS and how it's interesting. And it's very interesting to speculate about that stuff. But especially as a business, Modern Apple is super boring above the waterline where we can see it where it's just not about future products it's just about the stuff they release and how much they sell they're boring they're a money machine they make a huge profit they sell a lot of phones they sell other stuff too what more can you say and every time i turn on cnbc which i only turn on on the day of the results there is always somebody there is like oh apple's done for and somebody else and then the results come out and everybody's like money 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 amazing it's an amazing thing and it's like yeah uh, sure being a huge company that makes a lot of money and sells a lot of products um it is boring but it's also you know it's pretty good if you're that company and that you know that's apple right now today's show is also brought to you by aero with aero you never need to think about wi-fi again because they have created the dream setup for you it's a fast reliable connection that you can get throughout your house even out to the backyard and now is a great time to get on board with aero because you can get one of their beautiful second generation devices they have a tri-band second generation model that they couple along with the aero beacon which allows you to build a wi-fi system that is perfectly tailored to your home the second generation aero includes a third five gigahertz radio this makes it twice as fast as ever before and also lets you do more than ever because Eero is even more powerful now to help blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. It also includes a new thread uh, radio, which allows you to connect to low-power home devices such as locks and doorbells and stuff like that so you can beef up your smart home game. And also the new devices are really great. So the Eero itself sits flat on any surface. You can just plug it into the wall with the included power adapter. Um, you can connect your Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly if you you want to um, and also the aero beacon which is the little extenders they just plug straight into the wall so that you just you plug the main thing in and then the little um, aero beacons and that's what helps you expand your wonderful wi-fi coverage out throughout your home and also those little beacons they have a, a built-in led night light with an ambient light sensor in them so it just adds another little bit of use to the home and you can add as many aero beacons as you want as long as you have a standard aero device so you can put as many in no matter how big your home is you can stretch out that wi-fi coverage throughout the house um, Jason, I know that you have an Aero at home, right? And uh, I guess I we were talking Many. about this. Um, Aero, Aero is a great thing right now, especially if you've been a customer of previous companies who made <laughs> previous <laughs> previous white products. It definitely has. Uh, if you're coming from an airport, it definitely has the same kind of design sense. These are little white bricks that you plug into a wall, or that you know it's a little white block, and they've got an app to let you configure it, and it's a pretty simple to configure it. And for me, one of the things I liked about it is that in the early days of Wi-Fi, if you tried to have like multiple base stations, they would kind of fight. And Eero is made to be a multi-station system and they talk to each other. But what you see mm -hmm. is kind of continuous Wi-Fi everywhere. So you can put them in a couple places, depending on the size of your house, you might need um, many of them. Congratulations that you have a house that large. I don't, but I still have three, I think, in different places in my house. And what it means is my smart bulbs that are over my driveway in the very front of my house and me sitting in a chair in the backyard in the very back of my house i you know it's all covered the whole you know our whole footprint of our house and the, and the areas outside of it where we where we stand or we have devices it's all it's all covered because it you know you just plug it all in and say okay Eero, i want to i want to hook it all together and then it's done you don't have to fuss with like connecting them individually to each other they just they're all built to work that way from the start the new Aero system starts at $399 for a second-generation Aero and two beacons, and that's everything that you need to get started. Listeners of this show can get free 
free overnight shipping to the US or Canada when you go to eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com and use the promo code upgrade. That is eero.com with the promo code upgrade for free overnight shipping. Our thanks to Eero for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we'll do some hashtag ask upgrade questions. Today comes from, uh, our first one is from Gustavo. Gustavo wants to know, what do you guys think about Apple's leather iPhone cases? What do you think, Jason? Do you like those? I do, do like, use those? I do like them. I would prefer not to use a case on my iPhone, but for the, um, for the six, uh, and for the 10, it's just slippery enough that I wanted a little more grip. And I do like the Apple leather iPhone cases. I think they're really nice. You've got to like leather. I did talk to somebody this week who uses a silicone one because they didn't like like how leather can discolor and it can get, you know, I, I like that leather is uh, going to age and change and look I like the look of that, but there are, you know, silicone doesn't. So you could do that if you want. But I, I really like the leather cases. And I'll remind you that Apple's secret weapon here is that Apple is the only company that can make a case with an Apple logo on it, which is, you know, if you want the Apple logo on your case, that's how you do it. But I wish the iPhone 10 is so beautiful that I wish I didn't have to use a case on it because I love how it looks. But I just I don't feel like I can have that. I, I had a dream last night, Mike. Oh. That that I was on a roller coaster, or it might have been a go kart. I'm not sure. And and there was and I got I got crashed or bumped or something. And I thought, wow, that was a really bad bump. And then I got out at the bottom and looked at my phone, and it had been um, my iPhone had been smashed in my pocket by the the force of it. And what I'm saying is, I'm afraid my iPhone 10 is going to get broken, which is why I put a case on it. That's a very good reason. I agree with you for all of the reasons of like why you have a case. And also all of the reasons you wish you didn't have to have a case. Like I agree with all of that. Um, I tried to run my iPhone 10 without a case because I loved the look of it so much. And it was still just a little bit too slippery for me. And do you know what? This thing costs too much money. Like it, it was too expensive. And yes, I have Apple Care on it, but I would still prefer not to have to go through that. Right. Like I just don't want, I don't want to break my phone and I'm happy to have a case on it because my desire to not have a broken phone outweighs my desire to have a phone without a case um i'm i'm not such a fan of the leather cases i like the silicone cases um for two reasons i like the color range of the silicone cases more and i personally find the silicone to be more grippy which is what i'm looking for and honestly i think this is a personal preference thing because i spoke to many people who say the exact opposite who find the leather to be more grippy i have no idea if that's anything to do with the oils in your skin i don't know i think the silicone is more grippy i actually think it's too grippy which is why i don't like the silicone the silicone right. case i have a hard time getting it in my pocket and the leather mm-hmm. leather case i, I don't so for me it's the, mm-hmm. that's the right one for me. Wayne wants some advice, Jason. Wayne's okay. first generation stainless steel Apple Watch has broken. Is it worth buying the Series 3 now or wait? I don't have a good answer for this. I, I, I'm pretty sure there'll be a new Apple Watch this fall. How badly do you want an Apple Watch? Maybe you could get a used uh, first or second or third generation watch or a refurb and you can make a, you can get a deal on something like that and then use that for a year yeah i would really try that you can find first gen apple watches like being sold pretty cheap get a series one or series two used or refurbed maybe maybe the sport and not the stainless and then figure and just figure you're going to use that for a year or two and then the new apple watch style if there is one and generations will have arrived and then you can make a good decision about buying one uh that's more or less brand new 
with the material that you want. This is good advice, I think, because if it's if 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 the Apple Watch is something you must have every day, and considering you were coming from first gen anyway, if you can find a good deal on something that is lower than a Series Three, do it because you you don't know what you're missing out on with the benefits of it right. because you don't own it. Right. And um, I was going to say my wife's uh, battery on her Series Zero is dying. And uh-huh. it's a, it's a tough time, right, to like buy a new Apple Watch right now. And we're gonna we're gonna pay the seventy five dollars and get a new battery put in it and wait. And maybe she'll get a new Apple Watch next year. But for this year, I think we're just gonna we're just gonna wait and and spend seventy five dollars and get her back up to speed with her Series Zero, which she still likes just fine. And it's stainless, so again, buying a new stainless is that much more expensive. And it's a nice watch; it it looks great. So we're gonna do that instead. And I think that that because it's a weird time right now. If if there was a brand new Apple Watch out right now, I would consider just buying that um, for her. But there isn't, so we're gonna we're gonna defer too. So yeah, maybe finding somebody's used uh, old watch that they've replaced with a Series Three might get you through for let's say you know year year and a half until maybe the 2019 Apple Watch models in the fall. And you never know, in three or four weeks, there may be some big indications of some changes, right? If they start doing stuff like, hey, your app should be adaptable for different screen shapes, right? Like, then you'll know. <laughs> then you'll know. Uh, Jason, not Jason, different Jason. Jason yes. 2 okay. wrote in uh, to say, almost every online service I use has emailed me over the last week updating their terms and privacy. Twitter, eBay, Amazon, Fitbit, the list goes on and on. Did something happen across the internet <laughs> that has necessitated this? Or is there another reason? Jason, let me say four letters okay, to you. Okay, do it. Those four letters are GDPR. GDPR. <laughs> Basically, in the EU, there are a bunch of new privacy regulations, um, and it's all about one of the key things why you're seeing this so much is companies have to update their terms and their privacy policies to account for how they keep in your data and how it's used and how you can get to it. But also, if you're on an email mailing list, you have to basically now reconfirm in a lot of instances that you want to be on that mailing list. So a lot of companies, I think, are using the privacy and policy updates as an excuse to email you and be like, hey, you love these emails, right? You should click this button. So that's why you're seeing so many of those. Yeah, that's exactly it. And even if you're not in the EU, you need to um, you need to do... It, basically, if you've got EU customers, you're you're covered by GDPR. You need to do it, and you yep. you are subject to uh, their sanction if you break the rules. So you know anybody any business that's got people who are users in the in the EU, they have two choices: they can either do the GDPR stuff, which you're seeing, or like some companies, they can say, "Sorry, which is ridiculous. we're not going to have people in Europe anymore," which is usually a sign that their business is built on shady uses of of user data yes it, it, not yes, always a really good point. there are examples of small businesses that maybe um fear the issues with the like the cost of of doing business they got to hire a lawyer to look at their statements they worry about the fines they don't have very many customers in europe there are going to be some outlier cases but mostly if you're using a service like there's that service that unsubscribes you from messages um that slice intelligence owns and what that means is that they're actually reading through all of your emails to find out what you bought so that they can use that in their estimates of market share and they have this service that i think they bought they have it to data mine you and 
they that service is no longer going to be available to people in the eu because in the end that's the only reason it's there is to data mine you and if they can't data mine you in the eu they're not going to bother um so it's a it, that's a sign i'll tell you if you get one of those things that says we're not going to be able to use the service anymore because uh europe is is out uh that's maybe a bad sign most of the time joe wants to know what do we use for mousing surfaces if not a mouse pad what is your desk made of do you use a mouse? Yeah, we don't use. I mean, Joe. I don't think either of us use mice, oh, right? Oh, Joe, is this was this sent in? In I'm not going to make jokes about people who use mice. If you use a mouse, great. I have not used a mouse with my computer since the 1990s, folks. I don't. I use I used a trackball for many many years, and I use a trackpad now. So surfaces. I use where my trackpad is set as my surface, and that's the keyboard tray on my desk. And uh, yeah, that's it. I have a wooden desk. I very occasionally, maybe like once or twice a year, will use a mouse, which is usually just because of some kind of injury thing. Mm. I don't know. Nope. But uh, then I just use it directly on the desk. I don't have a mouse pad. My desk is made of wood, but you know, it's wood in quotes because it's really like particle board with a wood fake kind of cover on it i think mine's like ikea i mean i have no idea i mean there could be a, a small family pressed, living in there it, I have it's no sawdust idea. pressed mm-hmm. into the shape of wood and so technically wood but le- it's wood like a pringle is a potato chip it's sort of that kind of wood but mm, most furniture is like that these days and i think my keyboard tray is that stuff too although it might be plastic i'm not sure but but my desk is is that you know ikea like wood surface it's got a fake nice fake wood grain on it though it's very pretty but i don't think it's real here's james's question i have mixed feelings about the idea of ar glasses it would make things like turn by turn directions better and would you know could potentially in some instances make our lives better overall but how could an ar people wearing ar glasses affect face-to-face interactions I think significantly, and and this is hmm. my reservation with this stuff. Yeah, I think I think significantly is true. I think change, change will change things that will happen. I think our all new technology changes aspects, right? Our aspect of our interaction now when we have smartphones is different and you see people using their smartphones and all of that. And that, that changes things. Having cars change things and having public transit change things. But it is true. This, this is a heretofore not, not intervened by technology, not, not in, in, imposed over our human experience, but now imposed through technology where you are getting, you know, jokes to tell to make you seem more interesting facts that you're looking up data about this person um even if it's as simple as like oh that's your name i forgot who you are but now i know like all of that stuff can be in there and it does mean the as we knew with the google glass stuff like the distraction issue where now we know you're distracted if you're looking down at your phone or your watch but with a heads-up display are we going to know are they going to people looking at you blankly but they're actually doing something else it makes that part that much harder too yeah, the, my concern is just like the Apple Watch was a step, right? And I know that there are times where like, and I still get this every now and then where like, I'm, you know, things are coming in and I'm just glancing at stuff and people are like, it's not the, it's moved away from, uh, oh, are you checking the time if you've got to be somewhere, which is what we all initially thought it was going to be. But now it's just like, what's going on? Like they know it's notifications. Like, why are you checking this stuff? Right. So that that's a thing that I see and I and I've been privy to and it's something that I have to pay attention to. If I've got something literally beaming into my eyeballs, like 
that is very different, right? Like, how is that not going to distract me? Yeah. Like, I don't, I just don't, this is my reservation with this. Like, I, I do genuinely believe that this could be a cool product. Like, whilst it was wonky in a lot of areas, I always thought Google Glass was kind of cool. Like, some of the stuff that it could do is kind of cool, right? As, as somebody who primarily navigates by foot, you know, d- having turn-by-turn directions in front of my face for walking is fantastic, right? So, because, like, you know, it's not like when you're in a car and you can just mount the system somewhere, right? Like, you're kind of walking around staring at your phone. It's, 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 it's like, kind of awkward. But having it, like, right in front of your face is great, right? Like, all of that stuff is great. But I think one of the reasons that Google Glass ended up not working out is this exact thing, because you can't hide it. You're wearing those, you're wearing those, and everybody knows, and they're going to react to you differently. Yeah, but imagine a world where everybody's got them, though, right? When everybody's got them, what does that mean? That's it, though. Mean? I don't know. I, I, because this is the my, my feeling, Jason, is this, this uh, awkwardness that people feel, I think, could be the reason that we won't all have them. The, so I, I don't know. I wonder, um, I was thinking about things like there's somebody you don't like and so you have them, you, know, like you put a Snapchat filter on them where they always look like a clown or their eyes bug out or something like that. I mean, where you're mocking them in your visual field, even though they don't know it. Like there's all sorts of bad usage of this, or maybe that's good if it's a really bad person and, and you want to not, you, you don't want to deal with them, but you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's a complete change it, uh, in human it'd be interaction. Great to help me remember people's names because I forget names yeah. all the time. So that'd be nice. Yeah. But completely, I, I think in the end, um, you know, everybody will use it differently because of course people are people, but that there will be like, uh, people will, we will understand that the, there's a certain lightness of a, of an AR interface overlaid on the world when you're talking to somebody that that maybe and of course they, these things are going to be able to detect when you're talking to somebody so it may go into a mode when you're talking to somebody that you've set that that reduces everything it may maybe even just saying it they, that everything else around them darkens so that you're focused just on them right? Like they could do that too. There's lots of things you could do, but other people will want to be like checking their email or whatever is the future email that comes in AR um, uh, while they're talking to somebody and just be alerted when they say something interesting um, or have a, or have a transcript of what they've said up to then. So that if you didn't hear what they said, you can quickly read the transcript and then respond to it. I mean, all that stuff is going to be to play for. And I think in the end, I think we'll all figure it out and it'll be okay. But it, that doesn't necessarily mean that human interaction will won't be completely changed by something like that in a world where everybody's got AR in their vision all the time. That's going to be a while. Like there's going to be this really ugly transition phase, but ultimately if that's the world, then it'll, yeah, it'll be a really different world. And the way we interact with people face to face will be totally different. I mean, we did all get used to smartphones, right? Like we did, like that was a huge change because we had the entire internet available to reach us. Like that, this wasn't a thing that existed before, you know, the idea of the push notification, right? Like when that became a thing, the push notification, someone being able to reach you via any method, either personal or application from wherever you are, like that was a huge change, I think, in in social interactions and, and just smartphones in general. And by and large, I think we've adapted to that. Like people have understood certain etiquettes around that, right? Like, the, and and my hope would be that, like, if these things exist, maybe there is a thing where, like, if you're sitting down to somebody with dinner, like, you take them off, right? And that that's just how you live your life. But 
But I don't know. I mean, then, then there's the other awkward problem of like people like me and you who wear eyeglasses. Well, they would be integrated into our eyeglasses, and then what do we do? So that we have, but we exactly. have a lot to work out before this can become a thing. Uh, but if I think if any company has the the track record to show that they can try and do get some of this way, it's Apple, right? I, I believe that if if anyone's going to get close to doing this in a way that is conscious of the people that are around you. It's it's probably them. Yeah. All right. If you have any questions you would like to hear us answer at the end of the show, you can just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and we collect some out to read every episode. Thank you to everybody who has submitted one for this week. Um, yeah, if you want to hear us talk about literally anything at all, it's a wide range of topics going to AskUpgrade, just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and we will talk about it on a future episode. Oh, yeah, and if you've got any podcasting questions, we're collecting them now because we're going to pre-record a whole podcasting episode as a special episode. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, it's a great time for you to do that at hashtag AskUpgrade. If you want to find our show notes for this week, go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 192. That's where they live on the web. But I'm hoping that the podcast app that you use should display them in all of their glory to you. So you can uh, you can go and read along and, and pull in some extra information based upon the stuff that we talk spoken about. There's a lot of great stuff in there today, including all of Jason's weird Amazon links for 3D accessories. Yep. They're all or in there. 2D. 3D, 2D, 4D, maybe even. Mm. Maybe there's a secret one. Who knows? Um, if you want to find Jason online, he is over at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com. He is at jsnell on Twitter, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. This show is a part of Relay FM, both me and Jason host many wonderful shows at Relay FM. Just go to relay.fm slash shows to find more there. Um, I want to thank Storyworth, Simple Contacts, and Eero for their support of this show. And we'll be back next week. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Y'all come back now, you hear? Hear?